Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Nico, for the introduction. Well, let me first say that I'm very happy to be here. It's the first time for me. It's pretty exciting. And I'd like to thank everybody for coming. I hope you're going to enjoy the talk. Now, let me start. So our question today is how did the solar system form? And the short answer to that is I wish I knew actually. But at least I'm going to present some basic results, recent results, that have shaped a sort of new theory of cosmogony, as we call it. Now, many people actually confuse cosmology with cosmogony. Let me just try to clarify it a little bit. Cosmology is the branch of science which studies the birth and evolution of the whole universe as a whole. So its basic constituents is space-time, matter, dark matter, light, things like that, which all evolve as a full system. And the smallest particles that are usually of consideration to the cosmologists, at least for those who do modern-day cosmology, are galaxies, let's say. Here we're going into a much smaller scale. Much smaller scale is what actually revolves around our own sun. But let me start backwards. So this graph, which doesn't seem like much, is actually just a composite image of the whole visible universe. So this is the cosmological scale. Every bright dot that you see there is a galaxy. Okay? So what you're seeing are associations or superclusters, clusters of clusters of galaxies. And the diameter of this graph is this. I don't know how to call it in English. It's something that sounds close to bazillion or gigabazillion of kilometers, whatever. Right? So one of these dots is our own galaxy, which belongs to a small group of galaxies, which belongs to a certain cluster of galaxies, right? And this is a group of galaxies, for example. Every extended object that you see here is a galaxy, either a spiral galaxy or an elliptical galaxy. And a spiral galaxy like that one is probably something like our own galaxy. It's a small thing compared to the previous number, of course. It is 100,000 light years across. This means that the light, which takes 300,000 kilometers per second, would take 100,000 years to cross the galaxy, right? It's a big distance, but still much shorter than the previous one. Somewhere there, compared to the center of our galaxy, is one of its 100, 200 billion stars that we call the sun, okay? And until the beginning of the 20th century, if you want, this was the greater image of the cosmos, of the universe for us. And in fact, we were using the term cosmogony to signify the birth and the formation of our own solar system only, so of this neighborhood. The story goes as follows. You need to have a good way of measuring distances to understand what is close and what is far away, right? So for example, we understood that definitely the sun is just like any other star that we see in the night sky. When Bessel for the first time around the 1860s measured distances, of the nearby stars and understood that if you take the sun and you just put it there, it would just be a bright dot on the sky. 
okay, like anything, like every other star that you see. And then after a famous dispute between astronomers, we realized that small thing which looked like nebulae, like that, in a telescope, were actually extragalactic objects, much, much further away than the stars that we see by naked eye. So it is then that we understood that this is just our own galaxy, this is our neighborhood, the stars that we see by naked eye in the sky are around there, and everything else is at much greater distances, okay? And this is how our solar system looks, not exactly in scale, so let me give you now the typical scale. Well, I said that every galaxy, like that one, actually has about 100 billion to 200 billion stars, like the sun. And there are about 100 or 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So basically, there are probably more stars in the universe than there are grains in the sand of the Arabian desert. Right? But what are the relative distances? Well, if the sun is indeed like that, this is more or less in scale when it comes to relative sizes of the bodies, but not distances. If the sun is like that, really the Earth should be this size, but pinned on the wall right there. And Neptune, the guy that's further out in our solar system, the most distant planet, should be 30 times further, okay? Somewhere at the end of the campus. And then the closest star to the sun that could host another planetary system is somewhere back home for me, Greece. This is the relative size, the relative distances. So we are roughly isolated. Every star is roughly isolated from the other, with the exceptions of binary stars and so on. Now, every star could have planets which are smaller objects that do not generate enough energy. It's not like the sun. The sun, like every star, generates nuclear energy and lights up and shares its light on the other objects of the system. So these small bodies are just revolving around the star. Now, 20, 25 years ago, I would say, that's it. That's what we know as planetary systems. There is no other, I mean, of course, for centuries, people realized that we cannot be the only solar system. The other stars, 100 billion stars in the galaxy, should have planets around them, right? But it was only proven, let's say, just 20 years ago when we first detected the first planet around the star. It's quite difficult to do because it is like trying to detect a mosquito flying around a huge light somewhere in New York City from here with your naked eyes. It's difficult, okay? But now we can do it with current technology. But up to that time, as Nico said, this was the prototype of the planetary system that we knew. It actually consists of everything that any other, sorry, any other planetary system would consist. There is a bunch of small rocky planets close to the sun, which we call terrestrial planets, and it's Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And then there is another category of planets, which we call the giant planets, and they are mostly gaseous. This is Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. These two different types of planets are separated by a belt, or a very thin disk, if you like, of very small objects, which we call asteroids, or minor planets, which is actually closer to reality. And the system basically terminates with a second belt of objects, small objects, which we call the Kuiper belt. And the difference between the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt, apart from their sizes maybe, is that these objects, the asteroids, are mostly rocky or metal, 
while these are mostly made up of water ice. And therefore, when one of them actually escapes from this region, comes closer to the sun, it becomes a comet. And you can see it because it lights up when it passes close to the sun. Now, again, just to see the scales, if we call the mean Earth-Sun distance one astronomical unit, it's actually 150 million kilometers, this is one for us, then this is the orbit of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter, the orange one, and in between every dot that you see is an asteroid. So this is a box with size five astronomical units. Zoom out, and you would find this box contained in this box, which has 10 times larger diameter, and contains the rest of the planets and a few bright objects that you see here, which is the Kuiper belt. Now, you zoom out another 10 times, and you find yourself in a box that contains the major planets. And there are, in fact, objects like that one, which is called Sedna, and it was discovered a few years ago, which approaches the sun to about 70 astronomical units, but can go away by several hundred astronomical units. These are the so-called scattered disk objects, we call it, or inner Earth cloud. And then you zoom out another 10 times, and you find the definite boundary, definite gravitational boundary of the solar system, which we call the Oort cloud. And nobody has ever seen it. Then how do we know it exists? Well, simply because we observe comets. And comets come from every direction. And you can measure their orbits and understand that they need thousands and thousands of years to go around the sun and back. So they come from very far away. And they come from every possible angle, so they probably come from something which looks like a spherical cloud that surrounds the solar system. This is what we call the Oort cloud. And this is basically the orbital structure of the solar system. We want to understand how this came to be. Why does the solar system have this structure? What happened? Well, let me just start by showing a few nice pictures, and then I'll get back to this question. So this is actually the sun, believe it or not. Okay? It's, in, I believe, an image in X-rays. And you see all these bright spots that we do not see by naked eye, which are called active regions of the sun, where you see huge eruptions taking place. And in fact, all the lines that you see here, all the filaments, are a very nice illustration of the fact that the sun has magnetic fields. And these are precisely the magnetic field lines. There are just particles from the atmosphere of the sun flowing along the magnetic field lines that we can actually observe now. This is pretty nice. Then, these are the terrestrial planets in the correct size scale. This is the Earth, and you can see that Venus is pretty similar to the Earth, but not quite in terms of climate, right? It's super hot, full of carbon monoxide in the atmosphere, not a very friendly place to live. But these are basically the two major terrestrial planets. Mars is 10 times smaller than the Earth in mass, and Mercury even smaller. So these are, let's say, byproducts of terrestrial planet formation for us. Do they have satellites? Well, the Earth has a satellite, which we call the Moon. And if you think that this, South Pole 8, can, is a big crater, you should imagine that this and this and all the other dark places in the surface of the Moon that we call seas, actually, are nothing but huge craters created by huge collisions with asteroids a long time ago, and then later on filled by lava to become dark. 
The other terrestrial planets don't really have satellites because the two satellites of Mars, Phobos and Deimos, are in fact looking much more like asteroids we were, which were captured gravitationally by the planet as they were swinging by it sometime, long time ago. The giants, the gas giants, are pretty much impressive. They are about 300 and 100 times the mass of the Earth, Jupiter and Saturn. These are the big guys in the solar system. They have extremely beautiful atmospheric structures like this giant red spot of Jupiter, which is actually more or less like a bad weather lasting for 400 years, something like that. And you see something similar here on Saturn. This is from Cassini, actually. The major difference between terrestrial planets and giant planets in terms of formation is that, of course, they are composed of different things. The terrestrial planets are rocks, essentially. And the giant planets have a rocky core inside, and then 95% of the mass is actually gas, compressed gas. Okay? The other thing that's different is that because these are gaseous, we know that it takes a few million years, which is nothing compared to the lifetime of the system. The lifetime of the system is 4.6 billion years. So the planets form very fast, the giant planets form very fast, 10 million years, while the terrestrial planets would take about 100 million years to form. And we know that from geochemistry. So the Earth came later, Jupiter came first. These are the satellites of Jupiter, the ones that Galileo found, at least. He has many more. And here you see, actually, this is a series of images taken from the New Horizons spacecraft on its way to Pluto. And you can see an active volcano on Io, which is the most volcanic object of the solar system. Right? This is sulfur lava all around it. Saturn, which is the impressive lord of the rings in the solar system and has many satellites and links and so on, also has two very interesting satellites. Enceladus, which has cryojets or cryovolcanoes, recently discovered by Cassini, and Titan, which even has lakes of hydro, of uh, <coughs> carbon, essentially, carbon-based hydrocarbons on its surface. So these are the two main suspects for life in the solar system outside Earth, together with Europa, which we know has probably an ocean beneath its ice cap that actually surrounds it. So these are very interesting places. Titan also has Another important constituent that its atmosphere resembles the atmosphere of the primitive Earth, but that's for later to discuss. We don't have very nice pictures of the other planets simply because there's only been one mission actually that flew around them. They're too far. So we have a few pictures, but not too much. These are mostly ice worlds with uh, also some significant amount of gas, but not as big as the previous giant planets. These are about 20 times the mass of the Earth, not 100 or 300. Now, the minor bodies in the solar system look like that. They come in different shapes because most of them are actually fragments of bigger objects that were a long time ago almost round and started colliding among each other. And their fragments are what we call now asteroids. They look like ravioli or broken teeth or whatever. And only the biggest of them looks round. Like I said before, the difference between comets and asteroids is that when comets come close to the sun, if you're very lucky, you see something like that in the night sky. 
And if you're close by, like the mission Deep Impact went to Temple One or the mission Rosetta went to Churum of Gerasimenko, you see that they are actually like asteroids with a lot of light around them, right? Because they have a lot of ice water, when they come close to the sun, ice evaporates and sublimates and throws away the upper layers and light comes out of the particles that heat up. Last part of the solar system are the so-called dwarf planets. Pluto, when I was growing up, was a planet, right? Not any longer, because the definition of a planet changed in 2006, it became a little bit more strict scientifically, and then Pluto was downgraded to a dwarf planet, while Ceres, the first ever asteroid to be observed by Giuseppe Piazzi in the New Year's Eve of 1801, was elevated to a dwarf planet. This is at the center of the asteroid belt. It's Ceres from the Latin goddess of agriculture, why we call cereal cereal, right? <laughs> now, there has been a lot of question last year. Is there, or last two years, is there a so-called planet nine? Well, it's a relatively new thing, but not so new if you think about it, because the quest for planet nine started in the end of the 19th century, uh, right after planet eight, Neptune, was discovered. And everybody thought that there must be another planet because something went wrong in the calculations. You couldn't figure out precisely the orbit of Neptune. The observations did not fit exactly to the calculations. So everybody started looking for another planet and Clyde Tombo in the 30s actually found that other planet, which was Pluto. Only it's too small to actually have a real effect on the orbit of Neptune. So it's not planet nine. Okay, we said we have nine planets. Now let's look for planet 10. Planet 10 was never found. Then Pluto was downgraded and we're back to eight planets. So the numerology keeps changing. The fact of the matter is that if we now consider we have eight major planets. By the way, the dispute was solved when we found out that we had a small mistake in the computation of the mass of Uranus. Then everything is fine. There are no disturbances to account for. But even so, we started discovering objects further and further away than the traditional boundary of the solar system, the Kuiper belt. These are the objects like Sedna that I mentioned in the beginning of the talk, which have very elongated orbits that go to thousands of astronomical units distances away from the sun and then come back. These bunch of objects are not just pointing anywhere on the sky. They point at two specific directions in the sky. And there are not too many ways to have that you need something that, with its gravity, will hold them in this configuration. And you can calculate what you need. And what you need, among other solutions, but this is clearly the best, you need another planet, which is more or less as massive as Neptune, but much, much further away than Neptune, about 500 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun, rather than 30 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun. This is the so-called planet nine, which unfortunately, given this configuration of the object that you observe, should currently be here. So the furthermost point on its orbit. So about a thousand astronomical units. This is very difficult to detect, to observe. And a lot of people are trying to. Maybe they will succeed, maybe not if it doesn't exist. But this is an exciting 
subject and it's, you know, it's actually led us to reconsider several things about the formation history of the solar system. So let's go back to the original question. How did the solar system form? Well, we know that about 4.6 billion years ago, somewhere in the galaxy where there is a lot of gas, like these pillars of molecular hydrogen that we have observed, a star was born like many other newborn stars that you can find here on this nebula. A typical newborn star looks like that when you look at infrared. Basically, it looks like a dark spot surrounded by a cocoon. This is a newly born star, okay? And the cocoon around it, shortly after the formation of the central object, becomes actually a disk. It flattens out and it becomes something like that. So you have a star in the middle and the rest of the material becomes a protoplanetary disk full of gas and solid particles which coagulate and collide among each other to form bigger and bigger and bigger objects until they form objects which we call cores of the planets. If they're not big enough, they will remain cores of the planets and then we will stop calling them cores and we will call them terrestrial-like planets. But if they're big enough, they will start accumulating gas, right? And then they will become gas giant planets. So that's the difference. Now, we know the physics behind this, or we know a big part of the physics behind this process. And it's actually pretty close to an artist conception of the whole procedure, which is that video here where you see a disk of material surrounding a newly born star slowly to be split in rings of material. In the gap here, there is a rocky core accumulating gas and forming a wider and wider gap in the disk. At the end, after a few million years, the gas will disperse. We know that from observing young stars. And all it's left are a bunch of planets. Well, this is a little bit simplistic, actually. But this is a real observation. This is a really, this is a disk, a protoplanetary disk around some star that was actually observed and resolved by the radio telescope ALMA a couple of years ago. So this is not much different than that, which is actually an idea that dates back at least to the 18th century. That material around the stars would become rings of material and then coalesce into bigger objects. Now, one request. I need to show this graph, please. And I will try to explain, okay? Because I need you to understand the most basic result that physics tells us about planet formation, which is the following. On this axis here is the distance from the sun. One is the Earth, one and a half is Mars, two is the asteroid belt, five is Jupiter. And here is the mass of a planet. Now, physics says, that if small solid bodies start to collide to form bigger and bigger things that we call cores, the mass of the core, the final mass of the core, is limited according to its distance. So, at the distance of the Earth, the biggest core that could have formed would be only 10% of the Earth's mass, like Mars. And as you go out, this grows to five or 10 times the mass of the Earth. So the cores grow as you go out. On the other hand, if you ask yourself, 
what is the minimum mass that a planetary core needs to have in order to start eating up the gas around it and become a gas giant? The answer is the red curve. It falls out with distance. So these two curves tells us, A, the Earth did not form from local material alone. It is impossible. We got some material on loan from other regions of the solar system. While the core of Jupiter and Saturn are several times the mass of the Earth. And B, because of the red curve, there was no chance for the terrestrial planets to become giants simply because the red curve, the mass you need to start eating up gas, is much bigger, much higher than the blue curve. So it was impossible to have gas giants close to the sun. Well, there is no problem when you go to the orbit of Jupiter because the curves have already crossed. Okay? So this simply tells us gas giants are there because there it is possible. And Earth is there and it's not a gas giant because it's not possible. This is the basic physics of the formation process. This is not a very nice video, but this is actually the best illustration that you can have from a real, let's say, simulation in our computer. This is a big planet and the rest of the material are, let's say, smaller bodies that collide among themselves and create bigger bodies. This is again the distance from the central star. Bigger bodies, fewer bodies. So let me play the video back again, and you will see that you have material which is blue, full of water, green, less water, and red, mostly rock. Local material are, is here red. As this planet moves inward, we'll see in a minute why, material is pushed to that region, collisions between the particles is promoted, and at the end you have few bodies which are bluish, so they are water-rich. This is exactly how we believe the Earth forms. You got material from there actually being pushed inwards, colliding with the local material, which could anyway only form something 10% of the size of the Earth, to end up with just a few planets, three or four, that depends actually on the simulation, that actually have a significant amount of water. They are bluish, right? That's actually an accurate, simulation, which means an accurate solution of the equations of the physics behind planet formation in a computer. This is what Nikos was talking about when he introduced me. This was not possible a few years ago. Advances in computing and our understanding of the physics led us now to have simulations where we can reproduce in our computer the process of formation of terrestrial planets. Okay? And we understand that in any realistic simulation, the end result is a bunch of planets around the position of the Earth from the Sun with more or less the correct mass and amount of water. Okay? And of course, the, another outcome of this study is that water comes from further out the solar system and is delivered to the Earth in the form of big asteroids full of water. Now, you must have noticed that that planet was there when we started the simulation and is now here, right? This is called planetary migration. It's inevitable. The exchange of mass and angular momentum between a big planet that probably formed before the terrestrial planets, like Jupiter and Saturn, this is what I told you. The exchange of mass and angular momentum with the rest of the small object 
inevitably leads to the migration of the planets. This actually tells us that the planets, which we now know and observe and have observed since thousands of years, and calculated that their orbits accurately since hundreds of years, were not there when they were formed. They started forming someplace, and then they moved around and reached, at the end, their final orbits. Okay? And of course, during this process, the small guys fly away all over the place. Okay? Some of them collide with the planets, and the planets grow a little bit in mass, or and the others are flying inwards or outwards into the Kuiper belt or closer to the terrestrial planet region. Is this a problem? Well, depends on your definition of a problem, because I think it's actually a good thing. One of the main problems that could not be answered for many years was how exactly did the giant planets reach their final orbits? Actually, you're looking at a video here of a, another simulation that shows this. this is the, these are the orbits of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, which suddenly, as you see, expand and eat up this disk of green small particles. Let's call it the proto-Kuiper belt. This is the work that we started doing 10 years ago, and it's called the Nice model. And the Nice model goes as follows. Because the planets move in the disk, migrate. And actually, we know also from other theoretical concepts that because Uranus and Neptune could not have formed at these large distances, they should form closer to the sun and because of other constraints. You're forced to assume that the planets were initially much closer to each other and closer to the sun than they are now. And if you do that and you start simulating how the system would evolve under the gravitational interaction between these big planets and the remaining mass in the system, which is this green belt of bodies, you find out that the system at some point in time goes unstable temporarily, the whole disk is destroyed, and the planets relax in a new configuration, which is stable and nice, and very close to the one that we now observe. This is the so-called Nice model, and it actually has a bonus in it, that apart from explaining actually how it happened and finding out at the end the correct orbital configuration of the outer solar system, it tells you a little bit more about the material that was there in the disk. The material that remained after this violent instability in the system is what we now call Kuiper Belt. And the material that flew inside towards the orbit of the Earth is just about right in amount, and the whole process takes just about the right time to explain the big, dark lunar basins that I showed you on the face of the Moon. We know that they formed, there are evidence that they formed more or less at the same time, about 700, 800 million years after the formation of the planets, by a rain, a cataclysmic rain of big asteroids or comets, which we call late heavy bombardment. And this is the only model that explains why and when the late heavy bombardment occurred on the moon, or at least so far. Now, if we remember also planet nine, my friend Konstantin Batygin and Mike Brown, who were the first to propose this, actually believe that it fits very well to the scheme of the Nice model. Because if you do the simulation assuming that in the beginning there was 
there were five giant planets. So there was one more planet of the size of Neptune. And you repeat the simulation, you basically see that when the system goes unstable, which would be time zero here, one of these five will be ejected outwards. The rest will remain there. So it is very likely that this planet nine was originally formed together with Uranus and Neptune, close to Jupiter and Saturn. And during this gravitational instability event, it was ejected outwards and stayed there on an elongated orbit and waiting now to be discovered, hopefully. Okay? So the existence of Planet Nine does not contradict the NIST model. This is the politically correct expression from my side. <laughs> right? Anyway, one last thing. Even if we understand very well how the exterior, if you like, parts of the solar system are formed and evolved during the first billion years, because later on the problem is solved, the last 3.6 billion years are pretty boring, in terms of formation at least. There is a big problem which has to do with the formation of the terrestrial planets, which as I told you at the beginning, took tens of millions of years to form. So, in a nutshell, this is the sun, the terrestrial planets, and the asteroid belt. And this is actually, if you like, the thickness of the disk of the asteroid belt that we see today. If you try to reproduce that by assuming that more or less the density of solid material in the beginning was roughly constant as you go out from the sun, the problem is that you will end up in your simulation having Mars as big as Earth and several Mars-sized planets would be in place of the, of the asteroid belt. This is obviously contradicting observations. If you try to assume, no, 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 the density was much closer in the vicinity of the Earth and not uh, close to the asteroid belt, then you end up having the good relative sizes of the terrestrial planets, but a very, very thin disk of asteroids, which again contradicts observation because there's no other way later on to make it bigger. So, we are playing with details here, but you know, this is the difficult, the difficulty of working on solar system. The observations and the constraints are so many and so robust that you need to play it with the details in order to make a theory that actually works and is correct, okay? So anyway, there is a way to overcome this difficulty because in the beginning when there is still a lot of gas in the system and the planets are formed, they could actually move, Jupiter and Saturn would actually move closer to the sun due to migration because of the gas. <coughs> and then they would move outwards. This in and out motion, which is called the grand tack, it's, I imagine, a sailing term, but I have nothing to do with sailing, so my friends tell me it's that, actually means that the planets would first migrate inwards, push material towards the region of the Earth, and excite the asteroids, and then come out to set up the stage for the NIST model, the previous model that I showed you for the exterior solar system. So if you, this would be, if you like, the timeline that we now believe we understand of formation. At time zero, a disk of material of different sizes and composition is there. Jupiter and Saturn form very fast, together with Uranus and Neptune, and they first move inwards. This is the distance from the sun on this axis. And then outwards, 
mixing the asteroids, removing mass, setting up the stage for the later second mass removal, as we call the instability that I showed you before in the video, to reach the final architecture of the solar system. And somewhere there, you could add Planet Nine if you want. Okay. This is, we believe, the story behind the formation of the solar system. So now you should know a little bit more about how the solar system, or hopefully know a few more things about how the solar system formed. And by that we mean how did this architecture came to be? The thing you need to realize, just to sum up, is that these planets form first, and their motion inside the protoplanetary disk dictates how the density of material here will be spread out. This tells you how big and how many planets you can have here, and how big and how massive the asteroid belt would be. Once this is done, then these planets, maybe together with another one, a fifth one, because they are too close to each other, and there is still a lot of mass out there, they would actually migrate outwards, kill the extra mass to create also the late heavy bombardment, and relax into the present day configuration. This is what our current understanding of the physics and the dynamics of the problem tells us. Thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.